So for those of you who have been uh, coming for the last few weeks, you'll know that this is our third, approximately, in our series on Genesis. We have been taking kind of a bird's eye view of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, and we're calling this series Genesis, the Story of. So our first Sunday, we talked about how Genesis is the story of God's goodness, it tells us the story of a very good God. Uh, last Sunday, we had a guest speaker, Ian Proven, uh, Marshall Shepherd, uh, teacher from Regent College, who talked about Genesis as the story of God's image. And this morning, we have the great privilege of inviting Rick Faw to tell us about Genesis as the story of God's creation. So Rick, I'd like to invite you to come, and I'll continue to speak about you as you join me up here. So Rick comes from Arasha. Lots of you will know that Arasha is um, a really important environmental, uh, Christian environmental sustainability organization, which actually found um, its roots in CAP in some ways. Leah and Marku Costomo uh, attended CAP for many years, lived in North Van, and that was during their time here in North Van and with us, uh, that Arasha Canada was born. And so we uh, think with great fondness and affection uh, with the uh, orga organization of Arasha. Rick Faw has been with Arasha since, I won't look at my notes, I'll just ask you, 2014? Uh, no, right? I think it's like 2004. 2004. See, I knew I had a four in it. I think I'm on to my 16th year now. That's exceptional. Yeah. Um, Vice President of Programming for quite some time. Oh, does that not get any... It, Taller? It, the top came off. All right, that's not good. What are you going to do? That's what are you going to do? Mm. Uh, and, um, and so we've invited Rick today to uh, tell us a little bit, uh, share with us God's heart for creation. Rick's other claim to fame is that he is the better looking, more intelligent brother of someone in our midst. And I think this might be the first time I ever actually officially get to preach to him. Oh, he's sitting right in the front. This probably happened many, many times before, but this is the first time official. Well, let's, uh, let's give a round of applause to Rick. Uh, welcome him as he speaks to us. <clears throat> All right. I think we got this going. Thanks, Dave, for the stand. And thank you, Kim and John and the CAP Church team for the invitation to speak today. Uh, even just as in the preamble, there are many current and former cappers that are near and dear to my heart. So it's a real pleasure to be here. I live at Kingfisher Farm. The 10-acre property has a pasture, ponds, and forest. And it's home to four goats, a flock of chickens, and 25 people from seven households. The newest house on site was completed about seven years ago, and it's a solid structure. I'm confident of this despite the soil type and high water table, because I witnessed the whole construction, even the parts you don't normally see, like the foundation. I remember my son, then seven years old, was fascinated with the whole process of excavating the hole, constructing the forms, and pouring the foundation. Now, contrast that building with our 100-year-old barn. 
The barn is great for concerts in the summer. It's got a lovely ambiance, and you're invited whenever we have our next one. And recently there was a barn owl scoping it out, but it's got a foundation made of logs, and those logs are now rotting. The whole west wall is actually sinking. Floorboards are literally bending, some to the breaking point. And unless we do an expensive repair to the foundation, the situation will eventually require a complete teardown. Moral of the story, a poor foundation puts the rest of the building in jeopardy. The biblical story has a foundation that is often neglected or overlooked, with the result that our witness and ethics and discipleship are regularly compromised. Let me illustrate. The Bible says that Jesus came to save souls, and thus that's the focus of all Christian discipleship. The Bible, and therefore Christian discipleship, has nothing to do with the creation of art or the study of science. The Bible, and therefore Christian discipleship, has nothing much to do with the ecological problems facing our planet. Whenever these statements, or others like them, are affirmed by our words or our lives, then it is a sign that the foundation of our biblical understanding is faulty, inadequate. It's like the floorboards in the barn start to bend, or it's it's like when the floorboards in the barn start to bend, or the door won't close properly anymore because the frame is so out of whack. It's a signal that we've forgotten or ignored the implications of the fact that the biblical story is shaped like an hourglass. Of course, in the middle is one very particular person, Jesus. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension is the center of the biblical story. However, we cannot fully appreciate the significance or the implications of this hinge point of God's work in history without the story of of God's creation. The biblical arc begins and ends with the widest scope imaginable, all that exists. Moreover, if we have eyes to see, this creation-wide scope is consistently in view throughout the biblical story. Jonathan Wilson, an author and former professor at Cary Theological College, wrote an entire book called God's Good World in order to describe why we need a fulsome understanding of the story of God's creation. He writes, I I emphasize the necessity of always keeping creation and redemption together in our thinking, teaching, and living. Without creation, there is nothing to redeem. Without redemption, there is no creation. He underscores that while the good news is utterly unimaginable apart from the story of Israel, and the coming of Jesus Christ, this gospel is cosmic in scope. My contention is that as we build the structure of our Christian mission and witness, our life in Christ, a poorly laid foundation is guaranteed to cause problems. So, what is the story of God's creation? To answer this question, I'm going to make six brief points. Yes, I said six. They will be brief. First of all, creation is made by God. He made it all. The opening verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
And it's no accident that the Apostles' Creed, one of the most universally accepted summaries of the Christian faith, begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You'll note the use of a literary device called mirrorism. Whenever I misplace my car keys and I search high and low, am I saying that I check to see if they were glued to the ceiling or under the bed? No. The use of mirrorism conveys the sense of high and low and everything in between. Likewise, both Genesis and the Creed are emphasizing the totality of God's creative work. God made it all. Number two, creation is God's temple. Have you ever noticed how the description of creation in Genesis 1 is full of architectural language? It comes through more clearly in Hebrew, but you get a glimpse of it in the first three days, which portray the designation of spaces. Light separate from dark, waters above separate from waters below, Waters below, separate from land. Perhaps it's not so different from drafting a floor plan for a house. Let's put the wall here to demarcate the bathroom from the bedroom, and then we'll put the kitchen island here to separate the cooking space from the eating space. Isaiah 66 is much more explicit. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being? Creation is the dwelling place of Yahweh. And it sounds like God's pretty satisfied with the house, the temple he's built for himself. While visiting a friend's home, have you ever thought to yourself, this place really says Sally. Everywhere I look, I see and touch and engage with things that remind me of her love for pottery and music, of how organized she is, of her obsession with the musical Hamilton. The point is that just like a house tells us something about its residence, so God's temple reveals his character. Consider Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Or Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Among many other things, in creation, we experience God's provision and creativity, his his generosity and faithfulness. We learn of his vibrancy and his love for diversity. So, creation is God's temple. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, when you build a temple to a god, what's the last thing you put in the temple? The image of the god. So too in Genesis 1, where women and men are the final piece of temple construction. We are created to be God's representatives within his temple. We are meant to display and reflect and convey his character to each other and the rest of his creation. Needless to say, there are major implications for how we live that follow. I expect that last week, Ian outlined some of the implications for people-keeping, but the implications for earth-keeping are just as profound. To illustrate, say I'm a fan of Rembrandt, 
the 17th century Dutch painter. I study his works, I practice my skills, I seek to emulate his style, I confess my admiration and devotion. I even go to the Rijksmuseum in Holland where his paintings are displayed. I enter the building with anticipation and then I pull out a spray can and a knife and destroy all the masterpieces? What? Clearly, destroying paintings is inconsistent with being an art lover. Well, similarly, desecrating God's temple is inconsistent with our identity as bearers of God's image. Number three, creation is very good. The biblical writers were experts at their craft, the Pulitzer Prize winners of their day, so to speak. They knew how to communicate a message to their audience. For instance, the many repeated phrases in Genesis, Genesis 1 is evidence of their skill. Lacking the ability to use bold or italics font, repetition is one way biblical authors draw attention to the important bits. So we read, And God said, And God said, And God said. Followed by, Let there be, Let there be, Let there be. And so on. Part of what this repetition, especially in Genesis 1, emphasizes is God's awesome power. He creates the world with his voice alone. Wow. Yes, astonishment is an appropriate response. Another repeated phrase is, and God saw it was good, and God saw that it was good. Seven times, in fact. And the last one is emphasized further as, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Tov miyod. Here's my question. Does this last repeated, repeated phrase also highlight God's power? I don't think so. The text reads, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. This is not an exercise of authoritarian rule. I decree it's good, and therefore it's good, and you better not argue with me. Rather, I think this is more like a painter or a sculptor working away, pausing, Ooh, that's good. Going back, adding some more. Pausing again, saying, ooh, that's good. And at the end, when it's all done, stepping back and going, oh, that's very good. And of course, we would expect creation to be good since it reflects its creator. Creation is characterized by abundance and vitality and delight and enough for all. And that's because... God is generous and kind and provides for everything he's made. Psalm 104, which an excerpt of, of which was read earlier, is an extended meditation on the way that creator God not only built sufficiency and plenty into creation at the beginning, but his ongoing creative work continues to provide the same uh, sufficiency day by day. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. They give water to all the beasts of the field. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. How many are your works, Lord, 
In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time, and when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. In fact, we depend on the goodness of creation for our own thriving. Our health is inextricably linked to the health of the non-human creation. As such, one of the chief ways we experience the provision of God is through creation. Air, water, food, shelter, warmth, light. So, creation is very good. But this is not to say it's perfect, at least in the sense of completed or finished. The work of creation in Genesis 1 actually culminates in Sabbath shalom. You'll notice that in the text, the seventh day is the only one that doesn't end. Rather, in Genesis 2, we get this picture that the Sabbath shalom of God means that all things, God, human creatures, and non-human creatures, are rightly related to each other and mutually thriving. A key part of this picture is women and men doing stuff. We've got work to do. We have purpose. Unpacking our job description in any depth, we'll have to wait for another day, but suffice it to say that according to Genesis 1 and 2, our task includes being fruitful, increasing, filling, ruling, subduing, naming, tilling, keeping. But all of this activity is done as we image our Creator. Clearly, the Creator has tremendous power. But unlike the other ancient Near Eastern gods, Yahweh exercises power and authority selflessly so that His creatures will flourish. And we, as those tasked to demonstrate and spread the character of God within creation, are called to do the same, to seek the prosperity and vitality of God's creatures, human and non-human, people-keeping and earth-keeping. Therefore, while we depend on creation, through it God provides our daily bread, it's also true that creation depends on us. A sculptor reveals the potential for beauty latent within a chunk of granite. Similarly, when human creatures are rightly related to our Creator, we will unveil more of the unrealized shalom potential embedded within creation, the potential for health and vibrancy and wholeness, the potential for life. So the story of creation so far is that creation is made by God, creation is God's temple, and creation is very good. However, creation is groaning. Listen to the prophet Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. Rejecting God's lordship is the root cause behind the abuse of human and non-human creation. 
Paul reiterates the same idea in Romans 8. There he writes, there he writes that the whole creation is groaning and that it is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Creation is waiting for humans to do our job, to image God by caring for creation in the same way that God cares for us with love and self-sacrifice. This is how we and creation are designed to flourish. The metaphor that comes to mind is the contrast between a well-tended orchard and an abandoned one. The first overflows with fruit and abundance, and the second is merely a tangled mess of wasted possibility. Nevertheless, because of God's faithfulness, the story of God's creation doesn't end here. The fifth aspect of the story is that creation is loved by God. I want to illuminate this in a couple of ways. First, do you remember the scene in Genesis 2 where God brings the animals to be named? We often observe the way in which this passage demonstrates God's care and provision for Adam after no suitable companion can be found. You may even have noticed the way God's invitation to name the animals informs our understanding of humanity's role within the rest of creation. After all, naming is a highly meaningful and familial, even parental act. But have you considered what the vignette might suggest about God's attitude toward his creatures? To me, the picture is like a six-year-old child that is asked to bring their prized stuffy or pet or hockey stick to show and tell at school. The child is overjoyed, brimming with excitement to display the treasured possession. I imagine God in Eden being on tiptoes with anticipation. He's so proud of the strength and skill of the elephant and its multi-purpose trunk, and he can't wait to show it to somebody who can finally appreciate it. I imagine God beside himself with excitement as he parades the chameleon and eagerly awaits the surprise of Adam at the fact that, yes, it really can change colors. And then I picture God's mischievous smirk when Adam is trying to come to grips with the platypus. Evidently, mashups existed long before the 21st century. The point is, God is thrilled with his creatures. And why shouldn't he be? They're marvelous. There are plenty of other places in Scripture that corroborate this claim. But how about just one? Let's look at John 3. We're all familiar with this famous passage. But the curious thing is that the word translated world is actually cosmos in Greek. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the cosmos to condemn the cosmos, but to save the cosmos through him. Even here, in a passage that is clearly focused on God reaching out to humanity through Christ, even here we get a glimpse of the much wider vision of a creator God that loves what he's made. Loves it so much, he'll do whatever it takes to bring to fulfillment the Sabbath shalom that he intends. 
Which brings us to the final aspect of the story of God's creation. Creation is being redeemed by God through Christ. Given the way Christians usually speak about the gospel, it would be fair for someone unfamiliar with the biblical story to infer that Christ's work of salvation is all about people. And while it is certainly true that in Christ everyone has a way to be reconciled with their God, to stop there is to tragically truncate the gospel's repercussions. The ripples in the pond extend so much further. The fact that Creator God is working on a much bigger project is evident throughout Scripture. For instance, recall the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. Noah is first introduced as the one person who walked faithfully with God in a society rife with depravity and wickedness. After the flood has receded and all the ark's passengers have disembarked, God makes a covenant. Famously, the rainbow is given as a symbol to remind us of this covenant. Now, remember, throughout the Old Testament, God makes a series of these covenants. Through them, Yahweh successively reveals his character and his plan to recover what was lost due to human rebellion. Ultimately, all the Old Testament covenants are fulfilled by the new covenant in Christ. But the first one is made back in Genesis 9. Here's my question. With whom does God make this covenant? Later in, we read in Genesis that God covenanted with Abraham. In Exodus, he covenants with Israel. And later still, God makes a covenant with David. But in Genesis 9, with whom does God make a covenant? Well, the heading in the NIV reads, God covenants with Noah. But that depiction is not only misleading, it's downright inexplicable. The text actually reads, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. I will see the rainbow and remember the everlasting covenant between God and living creatures of every kind on the earth. This is the sign of the covenant I have established with me and all life on earth. Get the point? In fact, within ten short verses, six times, the text refers to God's covenant with Noah and all living creatures or all life on earth. Clearly, the breadth of God's plan of redemption includes much more than people. And when we fast forward to Colossians 1, here we see Paul summarizes in no uncertain terms the scope of God's work in creation. All things were created through Christ. All things are sustained through Christ. And all things are being reconciled to God through Christ. God has not given up on his Sabbath shalom plan. Creator and image-bearing creatures and the rest of creation all in right relationship. Human rebellion has knocked the plan off course and still does. But because of Christ, the plan is back on track. 
So to recap the story of God's creation. Creation is made by God. Creation is God's temple. Creation is very good. Creation is groaning. Creation is loved by God. And creation is being redeemed by God through Christ. So what? What difference does this all make? Well, I'm afraid the so what conversation will have to wait till Thursday evening. My time this morning is over. That said, I'm convinced that the story of God's creation, particularly when combined with the story of God's goodness and the story of God's image, has profound implications for the Christian life. I'm going to end my sermon with the opening lines from Jonathan Wilson's book. Climate change, economics, sexuality, justice, gene therapy, bioethics, famine, energy use, Diminishing oil supplies, alternative energy, violence, evolution, torture, incarceration, ecology, and so much more. All these are urgent concerns for those of us alive in the early decades of the 21st century. Not only for ourselves, but also for those who will come after us. For Christians, all these concerns relate to our beliefs about creation. May God grant us his spirit of wisdom and discernment and compassion as we bring the fantastically good news of his story to our broken world. Amen.